Hi there. I'm Robin Anir, back again with Nothing on TV, a podcast in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. This will be the seventh and final episode of Nothing on TV's first season. It's not that I've run out of stories, impossible, only that there's an end-of-year deadline I've got to pay attention to right now. I'm working on a book. It's a history of all things second-hand. It'll look at everything from lost and found auctions to pawn shops to jumble sales, flea markets, scrapyards, as well as op shops, of course, vintage fashion and even the bend-down boutiques of Africa. And it'll trace the changing nature of second-hand over the centuries, cycling through necessity and embarrassment to hip and collectible, and I guess to glut, which is where we are now. So that's why I'm going to be taking a break from the podcast. Nothing on TV will have its nose bag on till early 2019, when I'll be back with new episodes. So stay tuned and stay subscribed. Now, let's get on with things. It must have been nearly 15 years ago that I jotted down on an index card the upshot of a report I found on page two of the Melbourne Herald, dated Monday, 8th of August, 1892, under the arresting headline, The Ghost Walks, from Elstonwick to Auburn. Here's the whole thing. The individual who has been making himself notorious by the adoption of the foolish tactics of playing ghost in the different suburbs has made his appearance in Hawthorne and Camberwell. A few evenings ago, as Councillor Munro was proceeding along Victoria Road, Auburn, he noticed a peculiar-looking object, attired in black, standing in the road under the shade of some trees. With a couple of springs, the individual who, in his coverings, stood some ten feet in height, landed across the road and disappeared down a narrow street. Councillor Munro gave chase but was not successful in again attaining a view of the strange individual. Other persons who profess to have made the acquaintance of the ghost state that he is enveloped in a black overcoat which he throws back when a female appears in sight, revealing a dazzling light caused by the use of phosphorus. The police and a number of private individuals are now on the lookout for this unwelcome visitor who will receive a cordial welcome should he fall into their hands. Fantastic. I kind of like to leave it there, just leave you wondering, as I wondered when I read it, what the hell that was about. Not that you won't be left wondering when this podcast is over, because really, I can't say I've got to the bottom of it. But let me show you where my wondering has taken me. It was known as the Suburban Ghost. By the 1890s, Melbourne was a sprawling metropolis with tram lines and railways serving suburbs that 10 years earlier, before the land boom, had been paddocks, if not the bush. The ghost never showed itself in the city proper and hardly ever in the old, close-packed inner suburbs. It thrived in lonely spots past the reach of street lamps. So that's the suburban part, but how exactly was it a ghost? The report from the Herald makes it clear that the tall figure chased by Councillor Munro was understood to be someone playing ghost. But even so, why ghost? Its description doesn't fit the modern image of a ghost. But from what I can gather, pre-20th century, going way back, a ghost might take many different forms and was believed to be a manifestation of the devil, an elusive, malevolent sprite, rather than some restless spirit. It's not as if Victorians weren't familiar with the spirits of the dead. 
Spiritualism was flourishing like never before, but those weren't ghosts. Ghosts were something else. And surprisingly, well, surprising to me anyway, their preferred haunt was the suburbs. This particular ghost had first put in an appearance, as far as I can tell, three months earlier, in May 1892, at Brighton, another of Melbourne's genteel suburbs, south of the river. At that time, according to a report in the Brighton Southern Cross, it is alleged that a number of ladies have been seriously frightened by the appearance of an unnatural-looking object in the habit of nightly appearing in the grounds attached to St Andrew's Church. Police had posted a watch for several nights, but failed to find any trace of what the report called a ghost or Springheeled Jack. Springheeled Jack? Who was that? That's a good question, but for now, just make a note of it. That's a name you'll be hearing more of. A month later, that's June 1892, and the Herald ran a report under the headline Eerie Elstonwick that the same idiot who'd been playing the ghost at Brighton had now turned up a couple of suburbs away at Elstonwick in the shape of a tall figure clad at one moment all in white and the next all in black. This report was a classic of its kind, stating that rumours were afloat in the district which, so far as could be ascertained, had no real foundation, though there was no doubt that some people had been frightened. What the Herald reporter at first took to be an eyewitness account of the piebald spectre, which had thrown or threatened to throw acid in the face of anyone who followed it, turned out to be third-hand, albeit from one whose word the Herald's informant said she had every reason to believe. A hundred years later, and the sighting by a friend of a friend, or FOF, F-O-A-F, would come to be recognised as a key element in the making of any urban legend. Two nights later, in neighbouring East St Kilda, a Miss Stewart took a severe shock when a figure clad all in white presented itself in the street. This time, the Herald reported that the fellow is usually wrapped in a white sheet or a long white garment of some sort, more like our idea of a fancy dress ghost, but on one occasion he sought to heighten the effect by carrying a white umbrella, which he suddenly opened as he made the spring from his hiding place. Miss Stewart's father and some friends went out looking for the ghost armed with revolvers and stout sticks, but no trace was found. Now from June into July, troops of youthful vigilantes patrolled the streets of Elstonwick of a night, carrying sticks and looking for the ghost, making it questionable said the Brighton Southern Cross, whether the remedy is not as bad as the disease. But the ghost kept out of their way, appearing only to unaccompanied women and girls. The female population of the district was said to be in a state of terror. Indeed, some newspapers printed, though admittedly without much conviction, reports of one or more women having died owing, or partly owing, to the fright of being confronted by the ghost. More credibly, they said that no lady cares to venture into any of the quieter streets after dark unless properly escorted. Now, right about that time, my great-grandfather, who lived in East St Kilda, wrote to his absent wife that after their friend Mrs Mazdyke and her daughter Lucy paid him a visit that evening, he'd seen them home past the ghost-infested regions. A woman and her maid, out walking a couple of dogs close to home at about half-past eight one night, was startled by a figure in white and with a strangely illuminated face springing up from a crouched position. They sooled the dogs onto it, but the perpetrator of this senseless and yet dangerous freak scaled a fence and got away. In nearby Caulfield, 
the Shire Council requested extra police protection for their district and offered a reward for the capture of the person playing ghost. Which brings us to August 1892 and the Herald report that kicked off this episode. The ghost had by then moved on, some distance east of its former haunts. Not only that, but its covering had changed from white or piebald to black. It had grown enormously in height, had dazzling phosphorescence under its overcoat and revealed itself to men as well as to women. Come to think of it, though, hardly any two accounts of the ghost seemed really to match one another. Could there have been a string of inept copycats? Or did it have more to do with the way people processed what they saw or thought they saw? Before there were picture books, movies and TV, people's imaginations weren't primed, you know, ready-loaded with images and visual metaphors the way ours are from a young age. Yes, people could have drawn on religious imagery to interpret the evidence of their own eyes, but also, I suspect, they relied on older superstitions and folklore, the kind passed down in words, not pictures. Councillor Munro's ghost sighting was almost the last of the season. Just one more report followed in September that year, and it came from the opposite side of town, at Flemington, home of the famous race course where the Melbourne Cup is run, Many young people lately, said the Weekly Times, have received a scare when coming through the less populated portion of the district to observe a shrouded form of elongated height advance towards them. The report went on to note that the figure wore the orthodox spectral white and to joke that it could be the ghost of a defunct jockey. More like two jockeys, I'd have thought, one standing on the other's shoulders. Otherwise, how to account for its elongated height? Melbourne's suburban ghost went to ground for the next three years, then staged a return in Brunswick to the city's north in July 1895. It was half past one in the morning and a lamplighter was doing his rounds, extinguishing the streetlights, when he saw something. What was it? Well, that depended on which newspaper you read. In the Herald, the lamplighter thought he beheld a man riding a bicycle and offered the remark, Ah, there, spider! This name Spider, as slang for a cyclist, seems to have come from the giant wire-spoked spider wheel of the old penny farthings. Anyway, to pick up the Herald's account, the supposed cyclist bounded over the fence with the agility of a kangaroo and opened a huge cloak displaying a breast of scintillant brightness which so dazzled the lamplighter that he ran without stopping until he reached a policeman on the Sydney road. Here, the age takes up the story. Constable 3594, on duty near the Sarah Sands Hotel, met the town lamplighter careering towards him in a breathless condition, pale and perspiring. This man, a tall, strong young fellow about 25 years of age named Bate, explained that he had seen a ghost. What Bate told the constable was that a black cloud had suddenly presented itself in front of him and whisked past his side with a swish. He turned to look behind, feeling a little startled, and saw it rapidly receding in his wake. Although it seemed shapeless, he concluded it must be a bicyclist without a light. Then he tramped on with his lampstick, keeping close to the fence, when, whisk, a black cloud passed like a cold wind, with astounding celerity between him and the post and rails, forwards, into the darkness, to a distance of twenty yards ahead, then turned in a semicircle, came towards him and passed him again on the other side. It was no bicyclist this time, he thought, 
for his ear had been strained to catch the rattle of a machine and he had not heard it. Moreover, the manifestation had cleared the gutter, which would almost smash a bicycle. Bate shouldered his lampstick and ran for the nearest houses at top speed, but the black cloud again overtook him, making him trip with fright and sending his heart into his boots. When it had again got ahead of him, it seemed to open out into a blaze of phosphorescent light. Again it passed him and finally disappeared. What he called a ghost would nowadays, I suspect, be branded a UFO sighting. There was a cluster of sightings around the same time in East Brunswick, where the speculative land boom settlements were half deserted and petered out into paddocks. A newsboy approached a tall, dark figure. Paper, sir? Whereupon the cloak was thrown back and the man's body was revealed in an apparently incandescent condition. In the same neighbourhood, a woman had occasion to go into her backyard, to the outhouse presumably, when a form like a burning man bounded over her fence and disappeared within the house. She ran to find a policeman who searched the premises to no avail. A plumber heading home after midnight beheld a really terrific apparition with, across its chest, a phosphorescent skull and crossbones and the words, prepare for death. Now, this became a theme. That same month, where in July 1895, in Port Melbourne, a Miss Tate was approached by a man who threw open his big black coat to reveal the representation of a coffin illuminated with phosphorus, at the same time uttering in sepulchral tones, prepare for your doom, before disappearing with a tremendous spring. A local footballer was reportedly so rattled by his encounter with the ghost that he had to miss a match against Richmond, though the Port Melbourne paper noted that we understand he did come into contact with some spirits prior to the sighting. By mid-August, Springhill Jack, as he is called, had reportedly been spotted south of the river at South Melbourne, Windsor, Turak, Balaclava, Caulfield and Elstonwick, and at Fitzroy, Northcote and Collingwood to the north. What the age called the limelight effect under his overcoat was a common feature of the sightings, although other details varied. At Northcote he exhibited a coffin on his stomach with the cheering inscription around it, This is for you. At Collingwood, said the age, the ghost has been playing it rather low down, as they say in this locality, on young couples spooning under the trees in the reserve, giving them tremendous frights at critical moments. One Friday night there were three sightings in Richmond. Again, there was the overcoat and the luminous words of doom, and the figure sped in leaps and bounds, scaling a fence two metres high, and yet making no sound beyond a slight clinking from something attached to its feet or legs. It is generally believed, said the age, that the masquerader's rate of speed is due to an apparatus after the principle of roller skates with pneumatic tyres to the rollers. Huh, an apparatus. This wasn't the only mention of something like skates. The ghost was back at Elstonwick around this time, though, as per usual, the Herald admitted, no one seems to have actually seen it at close quarters. And one Wednesday evening it was chased by police and locals through yards and laneways and over fences until, and this is the Herald's report, until it was lost sight of at about the corner of Allison Road, where it is said to have taken refuge at the house of a well-known resident. The first intimation the inmates received was the barking of a dog, but a search being made over the premises, nothing unusual was found. 
and the parents went out, leaving a daughter and two boys of eight and eleven years of age at home. What? What is this? The prequel to Nightmare on Elm Street? But listen, it gets worse. Shortly afterwards, the daughter found the back door and the outer door of the kitchen open, but all appeared quiet, and so she went to see a neighbour, telling the boys that she would not be long. Was this weird behaviour, or is it just that their imaginations hadn't been primed with horror movie cliches like ours are? Well, at any rate, to continue, the boys were sitting quietly writing letters in the dining room when suddenly the younger commenced to scream, and the elder, looking up, saw a figure at the door dressed in dark clothes with its face blackened. With great presence of mind, the boy seized a poker which was red hot in the fire, and the spectre walked and skated up the passage, looked into the bedroom, and passed out of the front door, escaping over the fence. And he had in his hand a staff by which he seemed to balance himself, for he had on skates or springs of some sort, which left marks on the linoleum in the passage and all through the garden. I don't know about you, but I reckon those kids must have cooked it up. I mean, their parents went out and the boys sat quietly writing letters? With a ghost abroad in the neighbourhood? Yeah, right. August 1895 seems to have marked the end of the ghost's Melbourne season. It would show up in Adelaide in October. By show up, I mean there were rumoured sightings, though as usual, nobody can be found who even knows the people who are alleged to have seen the weird visitor. However, as one reporter wrote, every cloud has a silver lining. Whether there is a ghost or not, the rumours have a beneficial effect in keeping children indoors at night instead of playing hide-and-seek in the dark between the cabs and trams in the street. So here we have another glimpse. Remember the picture show Panic in Episode 5? Another glimpse of the wild nocturnal lives children led before wireless and TV domesticated them. In November that year, the ghost was causing excitement in the towns of Traugan and Toon Gabby, east of Melbourne, where it was seen to clear a creek and a bridge in a single bound. It was dressed in white and 18 inches taller than the showground fence, being very long from the waist upwards, which makes it sound like those jockeys again, and it left behind it the smell of burnt matches, which is to say of phosphorus. Over coming years, the ghost, one reporter called it a phosphorescent charmer, don't you love that? The ghost would put in appearances at Albany in Western Australia, that was in 1897, hanging around the showgrounds here at Castle Main in 1898, and back in Melbourne's southern suburbs for a brief spell in 1899. And then there was a scare on successive nights in Launceston, but that turned out to be a powerful magic lantern which was played on the fences from a veranda higher up the street. Otherwise, the MO in each case was pretty standard. At Albany, the ghost wore a black mask and the usual overcoat and phosphorescent coffin combo and threw a liquid substance believed to be vitriol over anyone who attempted to grab him, with the result that one half of the people in Albany, according to a report, are now terrified to go out alone. The other half were probably in hot pursuit. No ghost report was complete without mention of a vigilante party that promised the culprit a warm reception if they caught up with him, which they never did. At Flemington, several young men went out each night dressed as women in an attempt to get the ghost to show itself. It didn't. One writer in exceedingly high dudgeon proposed that nothing would do him so much good as to treat him as the Carthaginians treated Regulus, expose him to the sun's blaze for several days, then head him up in a barrel, 
drive spikes through it and send it rolling from a hilltop. On second thoughts, perhaps such a death was too heroic, in which case his captors could always flay him alive, rub salt into him, and then spread-eagle him on top of an anthill. One headline asked, is he bulletproof? But it doesn't want a revolver or anything of that sort, said a pugnacious writer in the Adelaide Quiz and Lantern during ghost season there. Nope, a good whalebone whip or a stout bludgeon will be equally efficacious, and it will be a standing disgrace to the members of our cricket, football and rowing clubs if they do not take such action as will result in the partial extinction of this wretch who is frightening our mothers, our wives and our daughters. That writer reckoned the ghost must be either a libidinous wretch or some poor maniac. Generally, though, it was understood to be a stunt of the kind we'd now call viral. The papers at various times mentioned past culprits. The last one of the ghosts who was run to earth, said the Argus in 1895, was a medical student who gave up spooking after a revolver shot narrowly missed him. When the ghost walked in Brunswick, local police confided to the age that some years ago a resident there was guilty of playing the ghost, but they'd been keeping a close watch on him and were pretty sure he wasn't the culprit this time. Also cleared after surveillance was the son of a local councillor who was known to have a Mephistopheles fancy dress with horns, tail and bat's wings complete. There was an arrest in 1895 in the haunted southern suburbs of a lad aged 17 who went out at night decorated with flaming red whiskers, a pair of spectacles and a grotesque adornment of sticking plaster upon his cheeks as well as a red tam shanter and a coloured necktie, and an overcoat, of course. He frightened some girls near the railway station by glaring at them from under a lamppost, and they pointed him out to the police. But he was dismissed as a hapless dunce and released without conviction. Winter was understood to be ghost season. At the beginning of June 1896, one Melbourne paper predicted, now that the winter nights are coming on, the practical joker is working himself up to produce something startling in the shape of ghosts, spring-heeled jacks, etc. I promised you, didn't I, to fill you in about spring-heeled jack. The name itself is pretty self-explanatory. Jack, a sprite or trickster, with springs in his heels. He'd been a fixture of urban folklore since 1837, or really suburban folklore, since he first appeared on the London outskirts and tended to confine himself to the city margins. Right from the start, it was decidedly a a friend-of-a-friend phenomenon. Stories came thick and fast of women confronted in out-of-the-way places or even on their own doorsteps and being alarmed or having their clothing shredded by a sharp-clawed, fire-breathing devil in a cloak with a bullseye lamp underneath who leapt away over walls as if he had springs in his boots or else by a figure clad in either a bearskin or a suit of chain mail. As usual, accounts varied wildly. The Lord Mayor of London offered a reward and authorised vigilante patrols to hunt down what was at first called the suburban ghost and then Spring-Heeled Jack. Pretty soon, within just a couple of months, the Times of London reported a high-ranking police official as saying that In consequence of the notoriety which Spring-Heeled Jack had gained, the character was now assumed by many thoughtless young men who considered it a good lark. Copycats, in other words. Various hoaxes were apprehended, but there was certainty that the real Jack remained at large. At the height of the terror, early in 1838, 
A rumour caught on that the hauntings were part of a high-stakes wager between rascals connected with high families to see if they couldn't cause the deaths of six women. The chief suspect was the Marquis of Waterford, a man of pleasure notorious for his wild, even brutal eccentricities. Although an aristocrat, he consorted by choice with prize fighters and prostitutes, and when not at the racetrack or out hunting, he was up to no good, turning over carriages, breaking windows, wrenching off door knockers and fighting in the street. He had an especial hatred of authority figures, having been flogged once too often at Eton. And yet a good deal of indulgence was shown to the Marquis and his friends. For hijinks that might have got a commoner transported to the colonies, assaulting police, staging a prison break, he got off scot-free. From time to time he'd get hauled into court, but as a writer in the Times put it, those who can and will pay for breaking the laws may break them with impunity. So far spread was the Marquis of Waterford's infamy that in Melbourne's early years, the wild young blades of the Melbourne Club were branded gentlemen rowdies of the Waterford School by the press of the day. In 1837, the Marquis of Waterford took a pleasure cruise to Norway where he got into a fight with a policeman and was struck over the head with a metal-tipped club. He was severely concussed and it seems that the injury may finally have unhinged the Marquis. At any rate, it enraged him. He returned to England determined to exact revenge on somebody. And so, with his friends, he cooked up a daring venture for his return to London. At least that was the rumour, that the mad Marquis was behind the antics of Springheeled Jack. If there were a wager, it never paid off. As far as the records show, six women didn't die. No one did, at the hands of the Phantom. But though his season of terror petered out, Springheeled Jack never quite went away. From time to time, for the next 70 years or more, he'd show up in some far-flung part of England, or even, as we know, in Australia. It was never quite the same Jack. Sometimes he'd wear a tight-fitting outfit made of oilskin with a shining helmet. Other times, a suit that changed from black to luminous white. Sometimes he had a flaming face, sometimes not but the superhuman leaps were a constant. There were reports of his having leapt over two-storied houses and garrison walls. Indeed, sometimes he even had wings like a bat. He'd be blamed for mysterious deaths or really for anything out of the ordinary. He was even for a time implicated in the Jack the Ripper murders, them having a name, after all, in common. Springheel Jack was an instantaneous figure of urban folklore, an all-purpose frightener and bogeyman. Kids who stayed out after dark would be warned, Spring-heeled Jack will get you. He turned up in Punch and Judy shows, in pantomimes and penny dreadfuls, and in the 20th century he'd edged towards the pantheon of black-hearted superheroes featuring in comics and graphic novels and still cited occasionally, although now he was supposed to be an extraterrestrial adrift on Earth after the crash landing of his spaceship. Now, here's the thing I want to share with you. Probably it means nothing, but still, I can't help but wonder. Searching through old newspapers for something else entirely, I found this in the Melbourne Herald from September 1856. It was facetiously headed, An Australian PRS. And it goes like this. Margaret Powell, a young woman well known about town as the Marchioness and enjoying the reputation of being the daughter 
of the Marquis of Waterford, was charged at the city court yesterday with creating a disturbance, breaking windows and climbing over a paling fence. She was also charged with having assaulted and threatened the life of the watchhouse keeper, all of which sounds pretty Waterfordish. This Margaret Powell, who'd arrived in the colony just that year, aged 21, would go on to accrue a long string of convictions for offensive language, thieving and indecent or riotous behaviour. I've not been able to find out anything more about her claim to be the Marquis's daughter, but her name, Powell, rang a bell when I was reading around the first appearance of Spring-Heeled Jack in Melbourne in 1892. As you might remember, his first visitation was at Brighton. What else, I wondered, was happening at Brighton around that time? Well, there was this. Appearing at the Brighton Police Court, a man named T. Powell, charged with making use of filthy and obscene language in a public place. He was fined and cautioned. And then? It's not much, I know, but I can't resist the idea that spring Jack may have been transported to our part of the world in the person of the Marquis of Waterford's unacknowledged grandson. And right around that time, still at Brighton, there were numerous complaints of canaries being stolen from their cages, which is just the kind of thing you'd expect from a descendant of the Marquis of Waterford, or from spring Jack. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia, and is produced by Mrs Bradley, my literary agent, muse, and entourage of one, oh, and perennial intern, which is to say she works for free. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I've got plenty more stories in store. How could it be otherwise with a bottomless resource like Trove to draw on? Nothing on TV will be back in 2019, so tune in then for new episodes. In the meantime, you can find past episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and TuneIn, or at my show page, robinanear.com slash nothingontv. Why not subscribe so that when Season 2 kicks off, you'll know about it. The first episode will appear as if by magic in your podcast feed. Visit my show page or just Google Nothing on TV for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There's an email link there too, so drop me a line. Perhaps you've spotted something tantalising on Trove. I'd love to hear about it. Also at my show page, you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.